Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast from a rainy Los Angeles on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you as always by ZipRecruiter. You know what's smart? Not questioning Bill Belichick, Kyle. I know. I know. It gets hard, though. We're not franchising Trey Flowers. I know. It hurts my feelings. But it's smart not to question him. We've won six Super Bowls. You know what else isn't smart? Uh, or you know what else is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS to hire the right people for your business. Their technology identifies people with the right skills for your job. Actively invites them to apply. Get qualified candidates fast. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, Mercari is the selling app that makes it fast and easy to sell almost anything. Take a few pics, add a description. Boom, your item is listed. This is how I found nephew Kyle. He was on Mercari. <laughs> With buyers in all 50 states, stuff really sells. Everything ships easily, so there are never any awkward meetups. You can find Mercari in the app stores. Uh, check it out at Mercari.com. That's Mercari, M-E-R-C-A-R-I. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like Trey Young and if you enjoy watching the Atlanta Hawks, check out Winging It with Vince Carter, Kent Bazemore, Andy Finber, because they talked to Trey Young and John Collins after All-Star Weekend. That's become the most... The Sacramento Kings and Atlanta Hawks in a heated battle for who's the most fun league pass team right now. Uh, I enjoy both of those teams. Check them out on the Ringer Podcast Network. Check out the Ringer where we have a bunch of great stuff right now, including Danny Kelly's just epic NFL draft guide. It's like over 12,000 words. It's really great. Riley McAtee broke down the Game of Thrones trailer uh, exhaustively on our site yesterday. And you would have thought to yourself, well, how can you top that? Well, here's how we topped it. Mallory and Jason from Binge Mode, they broke it down with a video that is over an hour long. It's 62 minutes, Kyle. <laughs> and with the trailer, 60 seconds. <laughs> it's, like, it's, yeah, it's a short trailer. They spent 62 minutes breaking down basically every image in the trailer. It might be the most insane piece of content we've ever published, either at the Ringer or at Grantland. I, I was just in awe of it. Is is there's deep dives, and then this is like the abyss. Um, just incredible stuff by them. So if you love Game of Thrones, check that out on our YouTube channel, which has over a hundred thousand subscribers. It's like at one hundred three now. We get like a silver button. Where's my silver Where's button, the button, YouTube? Send us a button. Coming up, we're going to talk to the Ringers, Robert Mays who I've known for this entire decade. I'm going to try to get him emotional during the pot. Don't tell him. Uh, we're going to talk about all the uh, comings and goings that are about to happen in the NFL right now. And then Alan Sepinwall is going to come on. We're going to talk about Luke Perry, uh, who tragically passed away at age 52. And we're going to talk about Dylan McKay and what he meant to the 90s. Uh, Luke Perry, did he get his just due? All that stuff. And then we're also going to talk about the Sopranos series finale because I finished it two weeks ago and he wrote the book about the Sopranos. That's all coming up first. Our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, we're going to talk football in one second. Want to say something quickly. I meant to do it uh, on my last podcast, but it seems makes more sense to do it on this one. Um, 
So Richard Plepler announced that he was leaving HBO on Friday. He was the chief executive officer of HBO. He basically ran the place. Um, 2015, after I left ESPN, I think like 10 or 11 days later, I had dinner with him and Michael Lombardo, who was also there at the time. And they were trying to convince me to come to HBO. And the big selling point for them was, this is a place for creative people. Um, we help them realize their vision. We help creative people create. And that's been the selling point that they've had basically for, I don't know, the last three decades, something like that, really since the Larry Sanders show. I think when that's when HBO really started to become HBO. And Richard was, you know, especially the last couple of years, the biggest piece of that. He is somebody that creators love because he puts them in position to succeed. Um, he is very big on the whole concept of family. And he always says the word family and you're in the family and you're part of our family. Like he, he, he created a place that didn't feel like a network. It actually did feel like a family. And if, you know, though, though I've been at HBO now for three and a half years in various ways. And it's always striking to me how many people at HBO have been at HBO for a long time. You know, you meet somebody who's, they've been there 20 years, 18 years, 25 years, 27 years. And, I think that's one of the things that makes the place special. You know, for me, I went there to do a bunch of things. Um, one of which was to create this talk show that didn't work. And, you know, it, we rushed it. We did, we made a million mistakes with it. We rushed it. The idea wasn't right yet. It's It should have been monthly. There's a million things I would do over again. It happens. I learned a lot from it. Um, and sometimes it's just the way it goes. When it When it ended, I just assumed that was it for me and HBO. And it was the opposite. Richard um, was adamant about, you know, I think we had lunch shortly after and he was just like, look, you know, when we made a commitment to you, it was because we wanted to work with you and we wanted to do stuff with you. And it was a long-term commitment. It wasn't just a show. Like we, this is what we do. We want to work with creators. We want to work with the best people. And we feel like you're one of the best people. We want, we want to keep doing stuff with you. And I was, I was relatively shocked because I just felt like I let them down. The show didn't work, all that stuff. And, um, it was just really cool. And, and I think it speaks to the kind of guy that he is and the kind of leader that he is that, you know, they make commitments to people. Um, they put a lot of thought into them. They put a lot of thought into what they want HBO to be. And what it is, is a place that they want to work with the best. They don't do a ton of stuff. And Richard would always talk about how they curate excellence and how they don't want viewers slash HBO fans to have no idea whether when they click on something, whether it's good or not, that if it's on HBO for the most part, there's an understanding that they put a ton of time and thought and energy into why this is on HBO and how this fits into the other things they're doing. And that's the biggest reason HBO has been such uh, an incredible success machine these last three decades and beyond that, obviously, but especially like really since Larry Sanders show on where it's just like the place that people wanted to work. If you created TV shows, if you were trying to do a documentary, whatever. Um, curating excellence it's a really hard thing to do. It's a mindset. It is, um, you have to have taste. 
you have to have a real belief in trusting creative people. And if you hire somebody, you're hiring, you know, their vision, the way they think about things, you try not to tinker with it. So that's the biggest reason they've been successful. And if you talk to basically anybody who has done anything that's been super successful at HBO, they will always talk about the culture, um, what it means to have somebody looking out for you, what it means to be nudged in the right directions. And then their HBO's incredible ability to create awareness for something that's good, which is something that I experienced firsthand last year when we did Andre the Giant. We knew it was good. Um, HBO realized it was really good pretty quickly and mobilized behind it and raised awareness for it in a way that I'd, I had just never seen before. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how many people knew that documentary was coming. And more importantly, because HBO was making a big deal that this was coming, that made people kind of trust that they should spend an hour and a half watching it. And I think that's a really hard, harder place to get to. And that was part of the culture that, um, that Richard created and sustained. So when I read the stories about how he was leaving, um, obviously I had a feeling it was probably headed that way. I didn't know if it was going to be that soon, but, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know where HBO is going. This is such a crazy time with the media landscape where, you know, Netflix has just completely blown up the model of how people think about TV. They had 650 shows last year or something. Um, they're spending $8 billion a year on content and, at the streaming and all this stuff. And the fact that people watch television shows where they don't even have time slots anymore for, if you're under 25, you just watch it. You press a button and it's playing. You don't think about it. It comes on at eight o'clock, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock. Thrones is going to be the last show that people even think like that. So where people fit in, in this landscape, how people consume content, how people watch TV, all that stuff is going to be really complicated over these next 10 years. And I think HBO's biggest advantage um, other than the culture that I think Richard and some others created was that they curated excellence and they won the trust of people that subscribed to HBO and watched it. And that was, you know, when stuff didn't work, it felt was surprising because it was like, wow, HBO backed this and it wasn't that good. I can't believe it. Like you'd almost be shocked by it. Um, I'll be really interested to see if they can keep that. And I think Richard was a big part of why it stayed that way and why HBO was regarded that way. And I don't think it's something that you just move people around. It's not, this isn't like an NBA team or an NFL team where you just change the coach and it's the same thing. I, I think that to me, this is like, you know, if Popovich leaves the Spurs, are the Spurs going to be the same? Maybe, but I don't know. So I look at all this stuff and, uh, and I read, I read everything. I'm an optimistic guy by nature. I think HBO still has some incredible people in place. Casey Boyce, who's running programming now, is honestly one of the smartest people I've ever worked with in my entire life. And I say that not in a ask kissy way. He's just really smart. They have really smart people still at HBO. Um, and I really hope that they maintain the culture that they've created over the last three years, that it still means something that when something is on HBO, that it still is going to resonate and the decision to put something on HBO still matters. I hope that's how it stays. And I think it would be cool if, if it was, if it was the case and that this was just a blip, I think Richard, you know, he's still young enough, whatever his next job is going to be, it's going to be awesome. 
Um, I, th- I think he has at least one more great act in him wherever he goes. But uh, he's a guy that that meant a lot to me professionally. And, and you know, it's, it's just weird to read the stories, but I never really heard from that many people who actually crossed paths with him and worked with him. And he really was that great. He was he was uh, just a great leader. And one of those guys, I've even said this to him, it almost felt like an actor was playing him the whole time. Like he really was one of a kind, like always impeccably dressed, um, just felt like a boss. And that's why wherever he goes next, it'll be the same thing. Some people just have that extra something and I, I feel like he he has it. And I'm going to miss working with him. So that's it. I just wanted to say that. All right, we're going to call Robert Mays right now. All right, on the line right now, a man that I've known for this entire decade. I said beforehand I was going to try to make you cry during the podcast. I don't know. It's like I have 50-50 oh, no. chance. <laughs> I, I was actually going through pictures, found some classics from 2010, 2011. I've known this man for a long time. Robert Mays, how are you? It's crazy that it's been the entire decade. I'm also terrified of what those pictures look like. I'm a much slimmer man now than I was in those days. Yeah, there's a there's a couple good ones. That's all right, man. We all had, we all had our stages. Um, NFL really heating up right now. We are heading. This is. It's weird. The NFL's kind of figured out how to own this little stretch of time right now, right before like March Madness kicks in. It's after All Star Weekend, and all of a sudden, for about two weeks, it feels like everybody cares where everybody's going. What do you think is the number one storyline right now? I think it's Kyler Murray. I think it's Kyler Murray just because it's happened so fast. You know, the Antonio Brown thing, I feel like the news cycle of that is already nearing its tail end. The Steelers came out and said it was going to be settled by Friday. So it feels like we've had a lot of time to process the idea that Antonio Brown was going to be on a different team. Yeah. I mean, it feels like we're only in day five or six of the notion that Kyler Murray could be the number one pick in the draft and a Cardinals team that drafted a guy in the top 10 last year might be willing to move on from him. I'm still in the process of kind of reconciling and processing that. Do you agree with that? Yes. I feel like if you believe Kyler Murray is the guy, then you should move on from Josh Rosen. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to happen for a bunch of different reasons. If you're Steve Kime, the GM of the Cardinals, that's a really tough thing to admit 11 months later that you screwed up your top 10 pick so badly that you're going to have to deal that guy and spend another pick, another quality pick, another high pick on a quarterback. That's really hard to sell. And But if you can sell your owner on that, if you can say with Kingsbury, with being able to get a two or a three for Rosen, we feel like there's no reason to chase bad decisions with other bad decisions. So just to commemorate this uh, this GM of the Cardinals, who had one of the most amazing years, I think, in of any sports executive, he hired a coach that he then fired within a 16-game season. He He traded up. Didn't he trade up for Josh Rosen to draft Josh Rosen, who then he's moving off of after a year so he can spend the number one pick in the draft, which they earned because of all his terrible decisions and for the fact that they created one of the worst cultures in recent memory. And now they're going to put Kyler Murray in it with this coach who had a losing record at Texas Tech. It all sounds great. If I was a Cardinals fan, I would be going nuts. I'm like, hey, hey, here's an idea. Why don't we trade you, GM, moron who put us in all of these bad situations? Maybe you should be the one that leaves. It all unraveled very quickly for them. Because if you look back at the 2015 season, I mean, 
Carson Palmer is a borderline MVP candidate that year. If Cam yeah. Newton didn't win it that year, Carson Palmer would have. That team is a game away from the Super Bowl. And then the 2016 season happens. Palmer gets hurt. Arians retires. It all unraveled very fast. And they didn't really have a plan in place because they're trying to win right now in 2015 and 2016. And they mortgaged their future in a pretty bad way. They had no other, they had no receivers. They had no offensive linemen. The offensive linemen they did have got hurt. So it just really, it's hard to kind of comprehend how many things went as badly as possible for them in a very short period of time. And the Wilkes thing, I know it looks bad to fire an African-American coach one year into his tenure and hire a guy who was sub 500 at Texas Tech. Yeah. But I also understand how it happens in the NFL right now. The quickest way and the most consistent way to success is to have an offensive minded head coach that's also your play caller. I mean, Les Snead said it at the Combine last week. They were asking him, how are you going to deal with losing all of these assistants? And he was kind of like, what do you mean? It doesn't matter. Sean McVay is the offensive coordinator. Yeah. And I understand why you would go back on a decision to try to get the most you possibly can out of your quarterback. The problem now is it seems like they're about to jettison that quarterback. Yeah. And he's somebody that I changed my mind on 11 times last season. And I can't even remember where I landed. I can't remember if I think he's going to be good or not. There were times when he seemed pretty poised and at least a little bit in the Rogers phylum. And by the end of the season, it just was unclear whether his confidence was gone. Their offensive line was awful, et cetera, et cetera. I, I would be, if you could get him for a second round pick with the contract that he's under, to me, that's a no brainer. I'd, I'd, I'd actually be shocked if that was all it took. You really think it's just second or third round pick for him? And that's what Kurt, where Peter King reported last week. If it's a third round pick, I'm not exaggerating here. I think every team in the NFL should consider doing this. Yeah. Because you'd, you'd spend a third round pick on your backup quarterback, right? That's what you would use a third round pick for your backup quarterback. So if you're, it, that's the price you have in mind for that position. And you can make Josh Rosen nominally your backup quarterback on his contract. Think about that. I mean, and didn't they pay? The didn't they pay some of it already? Like it's it's actually like less bonus. money than it should be. Yeah, it's, yes, the signing bonus. So all you're on the hook for, I believe, are the base salaries and the roster bonuses. So you're looking at like the most like three million dollars in the final year of that deal. Chase Daniel makes six million dollars for the Bears right now. So with that in mind, if you're the Chargers, if you're the Steelers, if you're the Patriots, all of these teams that need a future at quarterback and don't really want to spend a ton of draft capital to find it. This is a really good move. And for a team like Washington, that is so desperately in need of both of a future answer at quarterback and a cheap answer at quarterback, considering it's paying Alex Smith, $20 million. I feel like they have to be the team that's willing to give up maybe a little bit more, at least a second round pick because they are more desperate than any other team at quarterback right now. Hold on, let me check with nephew Kyle, who watched more than a couple uh, Cardinals games on season season ticket with me. You used to be you used to be in the seat that he sat in, Maze, before you left us. Um, Kyle, <laughs> what's the time mark? Six minutes and forty six seconds. Well, you left. It was it was a stupid move. I stand by. I stand by thinking it was dumb. Uh, number fifty six pick for Josh Rosen. Would you sign up for that right now, Kyle? Yes. We yes, have twelve picks. Yes, definitely. Yes, I would. I think I would too. I, I I mean he I don't he might actually be good. Are we gonna get somebody better than him as a quarterback prospect at pick fifty six? I would do that right now. You wouldn't. And I understand he looked terrible last year, but 
I stand by the idea that it's impossible to evaluate him based on what they were. They had, they fired their offensive coordinator like five games into the season. They had no offensive line. They had no receivers. They had the worst line in the league. (laughs) Yes, by far. It's not out of the question to say it's the worst set of circumstances a highly drafted rookie quarterback has been dropped into in recent memory. And that includes Jared Goff with Jeff Fisher and Mitchell Trubisky with John Fox. It's saying a lot. Yeah, that is true. There, there's been some bad situations. The best part of it would be the ringer, ringer uh, ripples. Mallory Rubin, the Pats having a Jewish quarterback would be <laughs> one of the funniest subplots <laughs> of all time because it is not in her to root against Josh Rosen. She would just never be able to do it. But she hates the Patriots like they're Al-Qaeda. And that combo would just be that combined with Game of Thrones coming up. I really think we'd have to put her in like a mental hospital for like a week just to like unwind. It would be unbelievable. I and, can't wait. And, and just the lo- the looming like Lamar Jackson existential crisis that she's going to go through this fall. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. The Ravens, they're like, they're like uh, little league parents tell, telling themselves it's all right after the <laughs> Lamar Jackson debacle. Well, he was really good in the fourth quarter. He really, he got, he got his legs. It was like, hey, you guys were down 20. Uh, they, they I still have like to commit Lamar. to it for at least another year. I still like Lamar. We'll see how it goes. I, I have my concerns. The other team, if we're talking about it from the Jewish quarterback perspective, that absolutely should be in on this and won't because they never make a, a smart decision anymore, is the Giants. Oh, who, my God. In a way, if they were to deal like a second round pick for Josh Rosen, it would almost rectify the terrible decision they made last year to just forego quarterback and ride with Eli again. So they have the 37th pick. The Patriots have 30, 32 which is the last pick in the first round because we won the Super Bowl again, Mace. I don't know if you realize. Were you there? Oh yeah, I, you, I, I did, did you black out. I yeah. was there. I was we, at the game. We won the Super Bowl again. So we have the when you win the Super Bowl, you don't remember this because the Bears haven't won in your lifetime. When you win the Super Bowl, you get the last pick of the draft. That's how it works out. That sounds wonderful. So we have the thirty second pick. It it does feel like the Giants just giving thirty seven for Josh Rosen right now would have a one hundred percent approval rating with their fan base. It's just a yes, good trade. I, I absolutely think it would because then you get to spend your top 10 pick on a top 10 player. That's why I believe that so many teams should be considering this because if you're a team that needs a rookie quarterback, the only thing that you're not getting with if you trade for Josh Rosen is that first year of that rookie contract. Yeah. And I almost think that because you don't have to hand out the signing bonus, that makes it worth it. So well, what's the difference? And then I think of all the sports, this is the single most important thing to roll the dice with because if the guy is actually yes. pretty good would he have three more this year and two more after on that contract or is it five is it four or five it's a five year five you have the fifth year option right so yeah even if it's let's let's say it's a let's say it's a coin flip let's say it's a 50 percent chance that he can become an above average starting quarterback and you're paying him that contract which is zero. It's zip. It's nothing. Of like, how do the Patriots not roll the dice with that? Unless they just scouted him and decided that guy sucks. There's just no way it's happening. But I, it's possible. I, I just felt like he. Too many people who watch college football said that he had too many moments that were positive for him to just be a complete bust in the NFL. He was playing these high-profile and- games for UCLA. And I don't know. I, I just, I refuse to believe he's going to be a bust. I actually like the way he carried himself the first part of the year before his 
mine fell apart on him. I thought he there was a poise to him that I kind of liked. There are two things I feel like we have to take into consideration here. One is that it was something Dan Orlovsky pointed out on Twitter that I thought was very smart. Beyond all the turnover in Arizona last year, he had a bunch of different offensive coordinators in college. Yeah. In, in, when he was at UCLA, he had to deal with all of this inconsistency. And two, I, I feel like you have to wonder, uh, something, I, I talked to the old Rams quarterbacks coach about this, his first year when he got there with McVay about golf. And they said that they thought seven games was the perfect amount of starts for golf as a rookie with Jeff Fisher because it got him introduced to the league, but it didn't develop scar tissue. They yeah. could still kind of make him the quarterback they wanted to. So your concern with Rosen is we know the circumstances were terrible, but were they so terrible that it's left lasting damage that it's going to be hard to get over? And I think there's so many things you have to take into consideration with him. But if you're the Giants, right, you have the sixth pick. It, there's a good chance that the top two quarterbacks, whether it's Murray or Haskins or something, will be taken in the top three. That's just how it seems to go every single year. So you'd have to trade up to get one of those top two quarterbacks. If you sit there at six and you draft, you trade for Josh Rosen, you won't have to move up and give away future picks and you can use your pick at number six. I just think that a smart team is going to realize that the chances of Josh Rosen succeed, succeeding are as higher higher than they are for every quarterback outside the top two in this draft. And it's worth going after him with a much, much lower pick. Plus, if you're the Giants, he's the only QB out there who has less muscle tone than Eli. See of that. Oh, I don't know, man. I, there's a, there are a few guys that can give you a run for your money there. Jared Goff is 100% in that conversation. <laughs> Jared Goff. So uh, Ben Roethlisberger's right there. Trust me, that list is longer than you think. So would you... By the way, I think that works out great for the Giants. And now I hope it doesn't happen because I hate the Giants and I'll never forgive any of their fans for all the shit they talked after <laughs> my two Super Bowl losses. Uh, do you think Kyler Murray is good enough to be the first pick? Do you sign off on that concept? Yes. Okay. Russell Wilson 2.0? I think they're different players. I mean, I think that, you know, Kyler Murray has such a strong arm. Russell Wilson does too. But I think that Murray gives you everything you want. He's accurate. I mean, his numbers are comparable to Baker Mayfield's when you just look at the completion percentage and everything he did in college. The system's very similar, obviously. I think Baker is on a completely different level as a prospect, but I feel like if you just look at the pure talent and production and results from Murray, there's not a huge argument as to why he shouldn't be the first overall pick in the draft. Well, I, I was against it if he was 5'8", but that those two extra inches really did it for me. 5'10 is doable. That I don't feel like five eight is doable. Yeah. Can you get over that bar? That's what the combine is from a measurements perspective. As long as you're clearing these kind of hurdles and checking the boxes, that's all you need to do. It doesn't matter if he's six foot, but as long as he's not five eight, one sixty, then we're good to go. Right. And he's not. So uh and it would also be really fun. And you know, if you're Arizona and you've just had one of the biggest shit sh organizational shit shows of the last twelve months that anybody's had, like at least he's exciting. You get a, you know, you get another pick for Rosen. I I can't believe he's not a worth a worth a first round pick. I'm just stunned by that. Doesn't anybody understand football and like the fact that if you you can put any rookie in the worst possible situation and they're going to look bad? Like that's just what football is. The Patriots had I Jim Plunkett was my first favorite quarterback in the mid in the early 70s. My first favorite Patriots team was like 73, 74, that range. And Plunkett was the first overall pick. Can't miss. No way this guy wasn't going to be great. And they just put a bunch of shady teams around him. 
And by like 1975, he was a shell of himself and they traded him to San Francisco. And then he was out of the league and then famously was resurrected by Al Davis and won a Super Bowl. But I, I think that's the all time. You talked about scar tissue. That dude had more scar tissue than probably any QB ever, just mental. Um, so I, I, I think we always discount if you put a bad offensive line and bad coaches around a young quarterback, it's going to go terribly. How does it not go terribly? It's impossible. That's what this is all about. I mean, the list of quarterbacks that can transcend their surroundings and be good no matter what, I don't even know how long that list is. It might be like one guy long, and it was Aaron Rodgers like five years ago. That's just not realistic. Everybody needs a little bit of help at the very least, and he had none. I understand he looked really bad, but I'd still be taking a chance on him. That third-round pick thing, that, that that's not my belief. I would give up more than that for him. Let's think about how much it costs to get Sam Bradford from Minnesota a couple or from the Eagles a couple years ago. Right. That's also a thing, something to consider with this. The price for a quarterback on the trade market, even for a guy like Rosen, who's a top 10 pick, it's going to shift depending on how desperate teams get and what the demand is. Right now, most teams are set at quarterback. But if we get to August and somebody goes down with a devastating injury like Teddy Bridgewater did, that's how the market shifts. So if you're Arizona, do you just say, we're hanging on to both of them and we're going to wait to see what sort of trade market develops for Rosen? I don't know the answer to that because you're also sacrificing leverage because people know you need to trade him. So there's a lot of different moving parts here. Yeah, and if you go through all the teams from like 17 on in the first round, it's not really realistic except for the Steelers. And if they traded their first round pick for a quarterback, I don't think Roethlisberger would handle that well. And on top of Oh, all really? That, you don't think so? No, I'd have, that would be my expert opinion. And then you just go on down the line. It's, I don't know who else would, you know, maybe Oakland. They have those three picks. And if they decided they're just going to move on from Carr or do whatever and you know, put right. I, I don't really see them doing that. And then all of a sudden we're out of the first round. Everybody else has a quarterback. Um, that the Jags at 38, maybe Tampa 39. Well, if the Jags, if the Jags sign Foles, then it's a done deal. I don't think they'd give up more draft capital for a quarterback. They're you know, on a pretty short term schedule right now. You know, it's a bad idea spending 20 million a year on Nick Foles. Just I still don't that out there. <laughs> it's just like that. They just need competency at quarterback. They don't need like a like an overwhelmingly good performance. And Foles on a cheap deal makes sense, but paying Foles like market good starting quarterback value on that team, I don't see it. I'd rather have Case Keenum for like three million a year. The problem with Jacksonville is their timeline. Because if you look at a lot of the contracts they've signed and you just consider the financial realities of that team, that yeah. core is going to not stay together for very long. Right. In order to sign Foles, they essentially have to cut Malik Jackson and do some other cap gymnastics to even do it. That's so this kind of world-beating defense that we're used to in Jacksonville is already falling apart because of the financial concerns that they have to worry about with Foles. So I feel like it, with them... Yes, we could draft a quarterback at seven. Yes, we can maybe trade up for one. But how long does that guy take to develop? How much of our team is in place while that's happening? I don't agree with that line of thinking, but I'm assuming that's why they're motivated to fix it right now. And like Tampa is another one that I wonder what they're going to do. They they can't possibly run it back with Jameis. I, I don't understand that one either. They have the seventh pick and they have the 39th pick. That's another team that should be thinking about Rosen. Seven's obviously too high, but 39 is right in the range. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the the teams, the way they 
misevaluate QBs is really uh, consistently unbelievable to me. Like Denver, Denver signing Flacco was just incredible for me. I thought I thought it was like an onion article. It's unbelievable. I was like, are you it's saying? Unbelievable. Oh my god, this is really this is it, your it, move. It's my favorite thing. The one just idea we can rely on in professional football is John Elway looking at a six six quarterback and being like, "That's my guy. Let's do this." <laughs> He's so tall. <laughs> it's it's bring- amazing. It's. It's, we have these like these jokes kind of pop up around certain decision makers it's like so-and-so loves this kind of player and it's always yeah. a little bit exaggerated you know it's a, a parody of itself in a way john elway this is not a joke he wanted to sign brock osweiler he drafted paxton lynch both of whom are six seven and are way too tall to play quarterback in the nfl and then went out of his way to go get joe flacco who no one wants everything about it is amazing I wish I had like a like a type that people like for hiring for the ringer that people made fun of me for. Like if I if I really love six foot six editors, it was like somebody <laughs> Slate just laid some people off. There's a six foot six editor available. And I'm like, oh, let's get him. He sounds You're great. Like Belichick, you're breaking tendencies. <laughs> he he'll be so tall and intimidating at the computer. John Elway. Uh, Come on, John Elway. <laughs> Uh, he can see over the line under center. That's the most important thing. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about Le'Veon Bell, but let's take a break. We're going to take a break. Talk about Hulu Plus. Here's the thing about being a Boston sports fan this century. With 11 titles and counting. 12 titles? I think we have 12. It just completely ruins you as a sports fan. Suddenly you expect a title every year. Or in my case, every couple months. That's the funny thing about better. Once you've experienced it, you can't go back. That's the gist of that Hulu commercial I've been seeing everywhere. It's all about how Hulu has tons of shows and movies, exclusive originals like The Handmaid's Tale, plus live TV for sports, and that once you get Hulu, it's going to ruin TV for you forever. So start your free Hulu trial today at Hulu.com, H-U-L-U, Hulu.com. Live TV plan required for live content. Restrictions apply. All right, so Le'Veon Bell is took a year off from playing football to create a situation where he was going to be a marquee free agent in a league where nobody wants to spend more than 10 bucks an hour on a running back. Did you agree with this decision? Everything about it was wrong. Everything about it was was misguided. And especially when he sees the market and how it's going to unfold right now, walking away from $14 million last year was not a smart idea. I just don't know. We went over this a lot at the combine. We're sitting at dinners and just kind of going through every single team that we thought might be interested in signing him. And you just can't come up with very many. It's really hard to find a list of five teams that realistically would want him. I'm trying to think of anyone in my lifetime who held out and missed an entire year and it worked out. Because I remember when I was a kid, I used to love Gus Williams on Seattle. And they won the title, I think, in 79. He was this point guard who was just kind of this new school point guard, athletic. He was kind of balding. He could dunk. He could shoot. He was great. And in like 1982, he just held out. And he wanted like 900000 a year. And they wanted to, the Seattle wanted to pay five hundred, and went back and forth. And he just, he missed the whole year. And then ended up signing a deal and he got traded to Washington and never made the money back. And I was like 13. I'm like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> he just gave this money away for no reason. <laughs> Um, and it, I, I've just never really seen it work missing the whole year. If there's some example that I'm missing, please feel free to email us at the, at the mailbag at the ringer.com. But it's just money. You're never getting back. It doesn't work. Um, and it, on top of it, he really doesn't seem to have any suitors. Your, your guess would be the jets or would you rule out the Colts? 
Uh, the Colts, absolutely not. And Chris Ballard is way too smart to give Le'Veon Bell a bunch of money. It doesn't matter that they have all that space. So if we're ruling out the, the Colts, just because I don't feel like their GM would ever do it. And the Jets have said they don't want to. I mean, that, that report has kind of come out that they want some cheaper guys. That was the team I'd always just penciled it in. It's like they have so much space. They have a need at running back. They don't have a history of making really prudent decisions. Their GM is definitely backed up against the wall. But if they're not going to do it, then I think it gets really bad really fast. So you don't even have like a dark horse candidate? The Bucks are my dark horse candidate. Oh, okay. That sounds They don't have that terrible. much cap space, but they have some cuts to make if they want to. Here's the thing with pretty much every single one of these teams can sign whatever players they want. I mean, almost anyone can come up with the space to get a player under the cap. Remember a couple of years ago when the Saints were like $2 million over the cap and then signed Jarris Bird? It's like a $15 million safety, or safety contract. It doesn't matter. Most right. of these teams can figure out how to make this happen. I mean, the, you look at the Bucks; they can cut Cameron Braid. They can cut William Golston. They can cut so many guys and just free up space. Jason Pierre-Paul, if they want to, they can. So many teams can just convert si- or uh, base salary money into signing bo- bonus money in order to free up space immediately. It's all possible. And with the Bucks, it's kind of the same sort of stuff, right? One of the reasons I don't think they're that they wouldn't be keen to spend draft capital on a new quarterback is because their GM is kind of up against the wall. They need to win right now. And I think that's Le'Veon Bell is the type of move that it's splashy. You could argue that we're just trying to win football games. Some team that's not smart is going to do this. I just don't know which not smart team it is. It's funny. The biggest thing that's, or one of the biggest things that's changed for following sports as I, as I stare down 50 in September is the flashy move, teams are now smart enough to realize that that's stupid. Because there was this, we're talking decades of somebody would sign Le'Veon Bell and the fans who actually knew anything would be like, wow, that's stupid. Why'd we do that? But the team cared about the flashiness of it. And that was really like, that was the Red Sox for 15 years of my life. Um, I feel like teams don't think that way anymore. They're, they finally at least wisened up enough to know that it's not good to try to win this newspaper headline thing for 24 hours or this, I I guess, internet headline thing for 24 hours. Ultimately, you know, you really can't think that way. And I don't think anybody is thinking that way anymore. So I look at Le'Veon Bell, I'm like, oh, I I don't know about that. When Antonio Brown gets traded to the Redskins tomorrow, I think you're going to regret this. No, no, no. The the Redskins and Raiders don't count. I'm not not counting (laughs) them as real franchises. No, I'm not. John Gruden and Daniel Snyder are immune. Um, I was talking about normal (laughs) sports franchises. All right. That's totally fine. Yeah. Now the the Redskins, I mean, this is the Albert Hainsworth signing, right? Hey, we got Albert Hainsworth. Yeah. And the Redskins fans are like, wait, what? Why? Is that a real number? Why did we do that? Um, The Redskins have $17 million in cap space and they don't have a quarterback at all. And I guarantee you they're going to be the team that just comes away with Antonio Brown for $12 million by the end of the week. It's going to be incredible. I'm going to love every second of it. Well, that would suck for me and house because we bet initially on the 49ers at like plus 400. And then we put in another bet on the Raiders a couple days ago at plus 350. So you think that you think I the, see the Raiders doing it? I mean, it's, it's the Redskins and the Raiders. I think the two teams that are most apt to do it for the reasons that you just said. Well, the Raiders have the combination of just a shitload of picks, and you know, 
try need some sort of narrative that isn't just they've gutted the entire team and now here are some new it guys. It makes sense. Yeah, it make, it makes sense. I uh, the most fun scenario for me was would be if San Francisco somehow signed Le'Veon Bell to a Revis contract for like one year, twenty million. And then traded for Antonio Brown and basically just put together the Steelers in San Francisco. That would be fun. I'd vote for the that. The problem is the 49ers handed Jarek McKinnon a contract last offseason that made absolutely no sense. And they owe him most of the money from that. Oh, so no. It's hard to picture them in the Le'Veon Bell sweepstakes. They paid Jarek McKinnon four years, 30 million. And six million of that is still dead money if they cut him right now. So I would assume that Jarek McKinnon will be back. The Patriots didn't franchise tag Trey Flowers. and. Um, if we hadn't won six Super Bowls and I didn't trust Belichick completely, I would have been bummed out about it. Um, should I be bummed out anyway that they didn't franchise tag Trey Frowlers? Because it seems like that's just the easiest thing to do is just you lock somebody in for one year and and no long-term commitments. That's a really big number to hand out to one position. And I know Belichick hates to do it, especially at edge rusher. He never values that spot when it comes to spending a ton of money on those guys. Think about how many players he's traded or just let go. Chandler Jones, Richard Seymour, they didn't franchise tag Flowers. We'll see if he's back. But if you're going to pay that guy upwards of $20 million for one season, I think Belichick would rather say, I'll take the comp pick next year and we'll move on. I mean, oh. He does it all the time. And this is not a this is not an exception to that. Yeah, that's exactly what he's going to do. And it's, and it's logical. It's just going to be a bummer when we don't have a pass rush in week six and everybody's talking about, I wish we had Trey Flowers, and then we'll win the Super Bowl again. It'll be fine. Um, but think about what happened in the Super Bowl. It had nothing to do with Trey Flowers no. making plays off the edge. It's guys like Adrian Claiborne and Dante Hightower and just dudes that are all built the exact same way. They're like 6'3", 280, and they can just move all around the line. That's what the pass rush is for the Patriots. That's why they're not prone to valuing guys at that spot because they feel like they can manufacture one when they need it. I want you to admit to everybody that that was actually for a football nerd like yourself, and you're way up there in my in the football nerds that I know, that that was actually a secretly enjoyable Super Bowl. Just admit it. I've said that it was interesting, but not exciting. That's how I've described it. Great because strategy. Moment, it was not exciting. Great strategy, yeah, though. A lot back, of stuff going on. Going back and watching the game was fascinating, but being at the game was miserable. I mean, I think both of those things can be true. How about when the Pats... <laughs> when they ran the big lineup in the fourth quarter, but then spread everybody out and they had fucking fullback in the <laughs> wide receiver deep threat spot and tight ends. They do that all the time. I mean, you amazing. love that. You loved it. Yes, I do. I absolutely love that. Okay. I, trust me. Th there were a lot of cool things to take from that game. It was very fun to analyze, but it was not fun to watch in the building. There you was know, no energy in that place for four hours. You know, what's one of the most fun things to take from that game that really hasn't gotten enough momentum, in my opinion. Just an epic, epic, epic shit show from Sean McVay. It's amazing we even talk about him as a wonder boy anymore. That was one of the worst coaching performances I've ever seen in a big game. Certainly one of the worst ever against the Patriots, where they just did the same thing the whole game. They ran no kitchen sink stuff. They never ran their running backs... Um, the, our one weakness the whole year, which I kept talking about on the podcast, was wheel routes and delayed screens and screens and just running backs in space against our linebackers was the death of the Patriots. They never did it. And 
I, I, I'm still in disbelief. I've watched the game three times. I'm just in disbelief what their, I don't know what their game plan was. It was bizarre. I have no explanation for it. What'd you think? I don't know if we'll ever have an explanation for Gurley and just the lack of usage, not from a running perspective, but just motioning him into the slot and making Dante Hightower cover him. I still will never understand how that didn't happen. Outside of that, though, there are guys open in that game. And the problem was Goff was just swimming. He was swimming yeah. the entire game. He was just treading water. Belichick knew exactly how to confuse him early in downs and not allow him to get rid of the ball. And the pass rush got home. He just is not a quick decision maker when not everything is defined. And because New England was doing so many different things on defense and mixing up coverages, he just didn't know what was coming. He never had a feel for what was about to happen. And that's why you just see him patting the ball. That's why he's a second late on that supposed touchdown throw to Brandon Cooks that should have happened. There's so many moments in that game where you can just see his lack of ability to anticipate and to process information quickly just doomed them. And that was the biggest problem. I thought McVay was fine. It wasn't good. There were mistakes. But I feel like the just the shortcomings at quarterback are ultimately going to doom you against the Patriots the same way we've seen pretty much every single year. Whether it's the AFC Championship game with Bortles or the Super Bowl with Goff, if you are not good enough at that position, they're going to take advantage of you in the biggest moments, period. If Todd Gurley was actually healthy for that game, that's one of the most embarrassing coaching games I've ever seen. I have no I idea if he was healthy or not. Wasn't. Well, wh- I just why? have to believe he wasn't. Why haven't they had the surgery yet? Why haven't they fixed his meniscus or whatever well, the, the fuck report was came out this week that his he is it's arthritic. He has an arthritic knee. That was the report that came out this week. Ooh. So yep. what? So, so if that's true, it helps oof. explain some things. I mean, that's a disaster because they just gave him that giant contract. Yep. And I don't know if that's true, but if it is true, then it's not a good thing. And it points to why Le'Veon Bell probably shouldn't get paid very much because giving money to giving a lot of money to players at that position is a dangerous, dangerous thing. As you watched a young quarterback completely self-combust in the Super Bowl and make decisions a second late and just kind of kill his team. Did you have a flash forward moment to Mitch Trubisky in one of the next three Super Bowls re-experiencing you have the same to. thing? You yeah. have to. You that you have to sit there and say, if your quarterback isn't good enough, none of the rest of this matters. And that's why when I sit and just think about the Bears and everyone's like, yeah, you know, with the defense and da-da-da-da and all this, and you know, they don't have any money to spend in free agency, and how can they get any better? It's like, it doesn't matter. If the quarterback doesn't get better, the rest of this is totally irrelevant. And that is, it's not a complicated thing and it's not that interesting to say, but I really do feel like that's kind of where we are with the NFL. I mean, Nick Foles, was he a backup last year? Yes. But did he just get lit on fire for two weeks? Also, yes, he was very good. You need your quarterback to be good to win in those games, because even if you get close, eventually that guy is going to sabotage you. How hard are you going to laugh when somebody gives $70 million to Tevin Coleman? I see. I don't know if that's going to happen because it's the same okay. thing as we're seeing with Le'Veon Bell. Like, why would a team give Tevin Coleman a monster contract? Why does anybody do I anything? Think, I know, I know, but I just think at running back, it's become harder and harder to justify. All right. And with Tevin Coleman, it's not as if you're selling to your fan base. Look, we just got Tevin Coleman. I mean, on that side of it, it's much easier to sell Le'Veon Bell to your ownership than it is to sell Tevin Coleman. I'm looking, does Miami have a first round pick this year? Oh, they're 13. Yes. I was thinking they could be a Josh Rosen. Oh, they absolutely should be a Josh Miami's Rosen. Miami's 48, for, they have 48 too. Um, 
I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, I assume they're going to cut Tannehill, and then they're one of the teams that needs a quarterback very quickly as well. Them, Washington, and then and that's really it right now. I have two more questions for you, and then you have to go tape House of Carbs. Um, first of all, who is your favorite free available free agent? The one, as you, as I said earlier, you're one of the biggest football nerds I know, and you tend to gravitate towards certain players. They're usually 360-pound offensive linemen. Sometimes they're nose tackles. Um, occasionally, maybe an edge rusher. Who is your favorite free agent? Who Who is hitting a 10 out of 10 on the maze scale right now? I love Trey Flowers. I mean, I wrote oh, about him coming into the Super Bowl. You motherfucker. You just told me we shouldn't I, franchise tag him. Now you love I Trey Flowers? I, if I was another team, I would pay Trey Flowers. But okay. I know Belichick isn't going to. Okay. If I'm the Colts... Or a team like that, I absolutely would give him the money because I think he's really good. He's the type of guy, it was like Calais Campbell when he was in Arizona. The way they used him, he was never going to get 15 sacks. He was lining up inside a lot. He was asked to do a bunch of different things on the interior. And then as soon as he comes a defensive end for Jacksonville, he's getting 13 sacks a year. Yeah. I think that Trey Flowers might be that kind of player. I think used in a slightly different way, in a slightly different role, he could be a guy that warrants a $16, $17 million a year contract. I just think he does every little thing right. I mean, he's the perfect Patriots defensive player in a lot of ways. He just doesn't play a, he doesn't pay, play a position they value. Outside of that, I mean, like, if you can get Earl Thomas, that's pretty awesome. It's a weird free agent class. There aren't that many big names, but I do think a lot of these defensive players are going to make teams better, whether it's uh, Landon Collins, Earl Thomas, Tyron Matthew. I mean, these dudes can play. Who, uh, just a side question. So I guess I have three questions. This is the second one. What free agent would the Patriots, could the Patriots sign the next three weeks that you would just be bummed out? Golden Tate. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. Um, now mm-hmm. Kyle's just jostled in his seat. I fucking love Golden yeah. Tate. Yeah. You know what he'd be better than? I love than? Golden Tate too. Everybody who was our second receiver last year. <laughs> All the guys, all the guys who were just blanketed by everybody else's cornerback. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm in on Golden Tate. All right, last question. Cause I know you're watching the uh the you went to the combine. I know you're at the stage where you're watching YouTube clips of random offensive linemen. Um, probably a little too much. It's weird. It's it's almost a borderline fetish of you watching offensive linemen just blowing people off the I line. I watch all positions equally. Nah, it's, I just it's like a little offensive bit of a linemen more than the average person. Who's that dude on the Colts? Quentin Nelson? Like you, you've definitely oh, spent yeah. over a hundred hours watching Quentin Nelson tape. Who is your favorite? Uh, As everyone should. <laughs> who is your favorite guy in the uh, in the draft for offensive linemen? I ha- honestly. I have not watched that many guys, but okay. the, the one guy that keeps jumping out because it's free agency happens first. It's like the weird thing about the NFL calendar yeah. is that we go to the combine and then ha- free agency happens like five days later. But Bradbury, the, the NC State center, everyone seems to love him. And I just think he's one of those guys from everything I've heard, Garrett Bradbury, that's just going to get drafted by a team and be a 10-year starter in the NFL. And I just love players like that. I think that dudes like Travis Frederick, players of that ilk are really good investments. And I think that a team like the Rams or the Panthers, somebody like that is going to draft that guy in the first round and be very happy about it. It's funny how it's always like a center or a safety. I remember the year Ed Reed got drafted. I can't remember where he went in the draft, but he... Everybody agreed that he was like one of the best two or three players in the draft, but he went like eighth or 10th or whatever. And it was just clear immediately that guy was going to be awesome for 10 years. And it's funny how people never just kind of want to take that person in the top three. 
but we all know the guy's going to be awesome. So you think the center is going to be that guy this year? I, he just seems really safe. And then the linebackers. I mean, Devin White from LSU, everyone just thinks it's going to be somebody you can drop in. He'll play forever. I, I just like players like that where you just feel really good about who they're going to be. And that's why it was funny last year when Quentin Nelson went sixth and everyone was like, God, that's too high for a guard, everything else. And then you watch Quentin Nelson play. It's like, oh, yeah, he's one of the best five guards in the league already. He's going to be on our <laughs> right. team for 12 years. Yeah. We all, we all knew that going in. Um, Yeah. Colts. Would that be your kind of that? That's kind of the X factor team. It feels like heading into free agency because they have like seven hundred million dollars to spend and a a quarterback that nearly brought you to tears and joy a couple times last year because you really missed him so much. Um, it's fun to have him back. He's a fun yeah. player. He's he seems like a good guy. The league is better with him in it. Me, they I have one hundred seven million dollars in space. They have an extra top thirty five pick from the Jets. Like, in my opinion, they're the team that holds the cards in all of this. And they actually have a, a competent GM, which they did not have before. The Arguably, like, the, mo- the best GM of the last year. I, I mean, what he's done is remarkable. The position that they're in and how quickly he's turned that around, it's hard to overstate how impressive it is. Maze, we can listen to you on The Ringer NFL Show, and we can read you on theringer.com, and we might even let you on a Rewatchables podcast this year. I'm still sorting out my feelings wow. about look it. Wow, look at that. I'm so excited about not being on one. You did leave us. I mean, you literally left. You were here, and then you punishment. left. I, I hope people understand that I have watched every one of these movies like 20 times. This is my favorite idea for a podcast ever. I, it's, I listen to every single one of them. And my continued punishment for leaving Los Angeles three and a half years ago is that I'm not allowed on the rewatchables. Well, it hurt my feelings and it continues to hurt my feelings. Robert Mays. Just, I just want people to know. <laughs> Robert Mays, thanks for being on. Thanks, buddy. Let's take a break to talk about Allbirds. They're dedicated to making stylish, comfortable footwear using premium natural materials designed for life's everyday adventures like the Allbirds Wool Runners, which are comfy shoes made from wool. I've ended up needing these things in LA because it's been cold. It's nice to have comfy, warm shoes when it's 50 degrees, which feels like 20 when you live in Los Angeles. They look good. They're designed simply no unnecessary logos. They come in a bunch of classic colors as well as limited edition shades like graphite, moonstone, and marble. You can wear them to work or to play in the office or out on the town. Better yet, Allbirds New Zealand Merino wool requires 60% less energy to produce than typical synthetic materials used in shoes. You can feel good about wearing them. Allbirds wool is even ZQ certified, which means it's grown at sustainable farms where they treat the sheep well because Allbirds believes that comfort, style, and sustainability don't have to be mutually exclusive. Head to allbirds.com. Get your own, very own. Get your own. Get your very own. Your very own own pair of soft and cozy wool runners. All right, let's call Alan Sepulma. All right, on the line right now, one of our OG guests from way back in the day in the BS Report, uh, the famed TV critic, Alan Sepulma, now at Rolling Stone, uh, wrote the Sopranos sessions, which I watched the entire Sopranos in five weeks, 86 episodes while reading the book along. I highly recommend the experience. It was great. Thank you for writing that book. I enjoyed watching the show and reading it. So thanks. Well, I'm glad you liked it. That was the whole goal was to get people watching and talking about Sopranos again. I want to talk about it in a second, but we got to talk about Luke Perry first. Died at 52, out of nowhere, shocking. Um, And then obviously read all the pieces, including yours over the last couple of days. And 
was kind of trying to figure out how to how to put this career in perspective that was weirdly influential and just captured a time of television when a show like Beverly Hills 90210, which I obviously put in my columns a bunch of times and referenced and talked about, but really had a cultural impact. And I wonder now like shows, you know, like thir- uh, 13 Reasons Why and Stranger Things and things like that. I think they have the same impact, but it's more of a binge watch fast one, two week type of thing. Um, this show was, they, they did 32 episodes one year and it was just in your life. And it was this event on Monday nights and people getting together. And it got me thinking how that just feels like it was a million years ago. What was your reaction? I, I was really thrown by it. You know, I was in the same graduating class as the kids from West Beverly you yeah. know, when the show debuted. And so, you know, Everyone I knew was watching it. I grew a very unfortunate pair of sideburns that first year, like every other guy I knew. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that was, it was a thing. And the funny thing is, high school shows had been out of favor for a really long time. And that year, I think there were five or six of them, including like the Ferris Bueller spinoff with Jennifer Aniston yeah. and a couple of others. And everyone was completely dismissive of 90210. And that became the huge hit. And I would argue that you wouldn't have the WB and now the CW and like pretty much the last 20, 30 years of teen shows. It was hugely influential in that way. Yeah. And you think about the, the biggest shows in the nineties, right? So, you know, the go-to ones would be Seinfeld and friends and ER. I think NYPD blue, the shows that just push boundaries, took TV to, maybe a, a place that hadn't totally gone to yet or reinvented some format that used to work and nobody was doing it anymore. And it's weird to think that 90210 was one of those shows, but I really feel like it was. I, I think there was this void of, you know, kind of that teen drama, soap opera kind of show that had just kind of gone away and was a big thing when we were growing up with Dynasty and Knott's Landing and all those types of shows. And then but, those, but those shows were about like adults. That right. was the funny thing. There was this belief that like teenagers either weren't watching TV or they didn't want to watch shows about teenagers. They wanted to see the grownups. And then along came this and along came Dylan McKay. And suddenly it was a phenomenon and the, and the light bulb went off. And he was also, uh, you know, it was the perfect match of character and actor. And it was this guy that you know, we had heard as kids and as in high school and college, you'd always hear about like James Dean and people like that, these heartthrobs and they're these bad boys with the heart of gold. And I hadn't really seen that in TV that much or to, to, to the maximum kind of potential of it. And then he came in and now he's, he's dating Brenda and Brenda's dad doesn't like him. And, but meanwhile, he has this whole backstory and his dad is in jail and, um, he's this rich kid, but he actually, he is a good guy. And it, there was just all these layers to it. And they actually created somebody that I felt like this, I like this guy, this good guy, um, which is also a really hard thing to do. And I, I think in the past 25 years, there have been a lot of TV shows that have tried to recreate Dylan McKay in all these different ways. It is a, it is now kind of a go-to character and there's all these variations of it, but do you feel like he was a prototype of it? He was, and the, the reason it's so hard to duplicate him is because, you know, all the time you have these characters who you're told are cool. Dylan was cool. Like, you know, a lot of these guys, the shows and the actors are just trying really hard. You know, I don't, 
you don't necessarily want to put Perry on a par with with James Dean or somebody like that. But just in terms of like genuinely cool, seeming like that guy, seeming utterly believable, uh, like everyone would be drawn to him, that he was that magnetic, that was seemed absolutely genuine. And you know that's a hard thing to copy because you know not everybody has that. And they had the great rivalry slash friendship with Brandon, Jason Priestley, and. Uh, <laughs> And both of those guys ascend and become super famous. And we know they became super famous, not just because of the ratings of the show. Both of them hosted SNL within a year of each other during a really, really, really esteemed stretch of SNL where you still had Phil Hartman there and you had Mike Myers. And I think Dana Carvey was in one of the things. Um, when Jason Priestley hosted, who and he hosted before Luke Perry, Dana Carvey did a Dylan impersonation that I still think is like one of the 20 best impersonations in the history of the show. Like it's like out of control how good it is. Um, but they they were just kind of in the pop culture zeitgeist. And I think what that show was able to do, at least for, I don't know, five years, was it really felt relevant. Like you felt like somebody felt like left out if they weren't watching it, you know? Like the conversations were were happening and you weren't included. Like you almost had people were watching it just because they didn't want to be left out. And that's another thing that I, I wonder if that exists anymore. TV is so niche oriented now and there's just these little pockets and people love their shows and they talk it. But you know, I don't know what's going on with 90% of the shows right now. And then back in the nineties, that was not the case. Yeah, no, because you're doing it on your schedule and maybe for like, you know, a week and a half, everyone's talking about the same thing, but then you move on to something else and you know, when Game of Thrones ends in a couple of months, that may be it for water cooler TV. Yeah, it's sobering. It really might be the last show that I feel like everybody at least has an opinion on. And yep, and everyone's watching it roughly the same time. Yeah, now even you have, um, from a binge watch standpoint, there was so much time between last season and this season that any last person who is ever going to watch the show is trying to catch up for. Uh, for now, it's funny though, binge watching Game of Thrones versus binge watching The Sopranos is a totally different animal. Game of Thrones is so dense and rich. The Sopranos is unbelievable to binge watch. You can literally bang out four a night and they just, you cruise through them. It was great. I, I would have trouble banging out four Game of Thrones a night. 902-0, you could bang out 20 a day. <laughs> you just yep. have it on the background while you're doing nine other things, which is something... Uh, I used to do, you know, when Dylan left 902-0, I felt like that was, that was kind of a seminal moment too. I, I don't remember, it, it wasn't something that happened a lot in the annals of TV history. Like Shelley Long left Cheers. Um, what uh, Archie Bunker's wife left All in the Family. Radar left MASH. It was always like career suicide to do it. And when he did it, um, when Luke Perry left, it felt like, man, what are you going to do? But his career after that was interesting. He he did all these, did movies and he did, uh, he was on Oz and tried all these different things. And then eventually they just lured him back with a wad of cash. But uh, I was, I was thought like the way he approached his career was, was pretty unique. what did you think? I, I think he, he was sensible about it. He understood that they had taken Dylan as far as he could go. You know, there was, you know, by the time the other kids are off in college, he's running around trying to like reclaim his fortune with the help of a mercenary and all right. that. It just like Incredible. he didn't really fit on the show anymore, and he recognized that. And if there there was nowhere to go but down if he had stayed. 
And he kept working. He, you know, by all accounts, was a really nice guy, very sensible, never got a huge head despite how ridiculously famous he was. And he worked really steadily. You know, everybody else was about to be involved in this, like, curb your enthusiasm-esque revival that they're planning. But he wasn't doing it because he had a day job on Riverdale. He was the one who was still working. And now I can't even imagine how they're going to do it without it seeming really sad and in poor taste. Yeah. I had him on a podcast in 2013 and I had had Brian Austin Green on a year before and very carefully kept steering it to Nato to an O, which he was really happy to talk about. Um, and Luke Perry, it was, it was much more of a delicate uh, dance trying to get him to kind of talk about this stuff. And his attitude was like, that, that shit happened in my past. Like who cares? And but at the same time, it was some fun nuggets. But the thing that was that I brought up in that podcast, when I worked on Jimmy Kimmel's show, the first year, Luke Perry was on. And we had him in the green room. He was such a good guy. I was talking to him with uh, Tony Barbieri, who's one of the writers. And I fanboyed out for like two minutes. He was, it was, so, he was such a good sport about it. And then he went on. Monica Lewinsky was the guest host. And we had had this whole three days of Monica Lewinsky where she was the guest host, but we weren't guest co-host, but we weren't allowed to mention Bill Clinton. And at that point of the show, we were so desperate for any sort of headlines, attention, whatever. They actually agreed to that. So poor Jimmy had to do the show every night and couldn't mention Bill Clinton and had to mention like her bracelets and all this stuff and kind of dance around it. So the last day, the last night we had was the night Luke Perry was on. And he comes out and does like five minutes and he's sitting next to Monica Lewinsky. And he, at some point he, he turns over, he looks over to her and he goes, yeah, I was thought, I've always thought you were really cute since that Bill Clinton thing. And it was like, they, it was like this balloon just popped and then Jimmy was so <laughs> delighted. And then all of a sudden we could talk about Bill Clinton. It was just like, it was just classic, but he was a really good sport and a good guy about all that stuff. Uh, the Dylan drinking story arc when he, Dylan fell off the wagon after his family stole money from him. Still to me, one of the great, what, what is it like Soprano season three and Dylan's drinking. Those are the best two stretches ever in TV history. Would you, what would you, is it one a one B for you? My scale is quite the same as yours on that bill, but that's, that was a classic for sure. <laughs> he just went, he just went off the rails. It was good. Kyle, did you ever see that? I got to make Kyle watch the, those seven watched episodes. Nine hundred two and Dylan goes but off the rails the in one of the greatest ways that uh, that's happened. Uh, well, anyway, R.I.P. Luke Perry. Uh, very bummed out, and um, I really felt like he was this important television character, but hadn't really thought about it until this happened, which is a bummer. But sometimes that's the way it works. He made the show. Like he's he wasn't in the the first couple of episodes, the pilot, and I think that's one of the reasons everyone was so dismissive of it. And then as soon as he turned up, it was like magic. Now, now I watch some of these shows thinking like the dad instead of the younger characters because now I'm a dad, obviously. Um, yeah, and it's funny. I don't, I you know the great James Eckhouse. I don't call him James Eckhouse. I call him the great James Eckhouse, who played Brenda's dad. Uh, Dylan dating his daughter, and then. You know, they go to Mexico at one point. I would have been, if somebody did that, I'd be, be going ape shit. If somebody took my daughter to Mexico. So I, I might have to watch this again because I maybe I maybe I held Dylan McKay in too high esteem. You don't take somebody's 16-year-old daughter to Mexico. Come on, Kyle. 
Sorry. Um, let's talk about Tony Soprano. Let's take a quick break to talk about Robinhood. It's an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees. So you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, no account minimum deposit needed to get started. So you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy to understand charts and market data. Place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections such as 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market. As you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of the BS Podcast a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint. To help you build your portfolio, all you have to do is sign up at simmons.robinhood.com. Once again, simmons.robinhood.com. So this is another iconic character that created a new archetype, shall we say, the antihero, which is not an original point, and people have made that point many times. It struck me as I rewatched this entire show, just how many horrible things he did in it and how I still liked him in the end. And it's like Breaking Bad is the classic just descent into somebody becoming a bad guy. But Tony, episode to episode, would just do one horrible thing in each one. And he, I keep coming back to the bouncer, not the bouncer, the bartender at Bada Bing. What's yep. that guy's name? Georgie. Over the course of 86 episodes, Tony just attacks him like seven times, just bashing the yep. phone against his head. And he just was not a great guy. And, and and I really think that the reason we loved him so much was how great Gandolfini was. And I really wonder what that show is like with anybody else. And, you know, the point I want to make is I was staggered by how good Gandolfini was in this show. And I that think was it, what I, I just think it I think it's number one for me all the time for performances. It's the best. No, I agree. When, uh, when I went back to rewatch it to write the book, um, you know, I had sort of felt like, all right, well, he's, he's great, but you know, Cranston was great. Ham was great. Elizabeth Moss was great. There's sort of, you know, we're in this golden age and it's like, no, he's, he's the best. It's amazing how many different moments where he's like doing nothing. You know, he's in the car, he's singing along to the radio and it's riveting just because it's him. Right. And, you know, let's say like when he shows up at the uh, the Russian call girl, whatever you call her apartment, and and the uh, John Hurd is there. Yeah, and Kate <laughs> just beats him up with his belt, takes his belt off, and just whips no, that's, the guy. That's Zellman. It's he, uh, Peter Rieger who he whips with. The oh, belt. Peter Rieger, sorry. Uh, just whips the guy with uh with his belt, and it's just it's fucking brutal. He really there's just nobody like that. I was also struck by how funny the show was. And I don't think the Sopranos gets enough credit for how fucking funny it was and how like funny the Pine Barrens episode is, which is always the show that's mentioned as like the Watershed show. I actually disagree because it's got the whole subplot of, I think Carmelo, Carmela and uh, Furio. There's, there's like some really dead spots that aren't them in the Pine Barrens. The Pine Barrens part's unbelievable. I actually thought the uh, the peak of the show was the last two episodes of season five. 
Uh, oh, those are tremendous. Yeah, when they kill Adriana and then yeah, when they yeah, kill yeah. Tony B. And sorry, I'm I'm not doing spoiler alerts because this show happened 13 years ago. But the combo, <laughs> the Adriana episode, and I forgot how amazing she was. Dre yep. De Mateo, especially season five, which she won an Emmy for. Um, she's out of control that season. But that episode and just Silvio, just the switch turning and he just becomes evil. And then Buscemi, the next episode. Um, I To me, that's the peak of the show. Um, I, I think you could... You could maybe say that season three is probably has the most going on. Um, what did you what What would you say was the what was the apex mountain of this show? Uh, I mean, I still really love the first season just because Livia is one of my favorite characters, and the idea of Tony's mom trying to kill him seems like kind of the, the purest distillation of the idea of the show. You yeah. know, family versus family. Um, I love a lot of what happens in the final season two. Season five is really great though. And that's the yeah. one that those two episodes, like a lot of people just wanted the Sopranos to be this straightforward mob show. Like who's going to get whacked? What moves is Tony going to get, going to make? And for the most part, the show wasn't interested in that. It would do it kind of occasionally, but an episode like long-term parking, which is the Adriana one, that's pretty much just straightforward mob stuff. And it's amazing. Yeah. Like if they had just done that, it would have been incredible. It just had a lot of other things on its mind too. You know, watching it, and I, I had only watched it when I watched it um, yep. in the last decade. So I, I didn't really remember a lot. And watching season four, my wife was falling asleep during half of them. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, man, the season four is just really not that good. Like it had a couple good episodes, but for the most part felt really disjointed. And it was interesting. You You did in your book, you did, you know, just a series of long form interviews with David Chase, the guy who created the Sopranos. And even he admits that season four, they kind of lost the steering wheel a little bit, which I thought was really fascinating for him to reveal that. Were you surprised by that? No, because you could tell just watching it and you could see like towards the end, like every episode had five or six credited writers, which is usually only a thing that happens if there's a real scramble there. Uh, and that was the first one I went up covering at the Star Ledger and I felt like, oh, I'd been handed this lemon. Like, you know, here I get the Sopranos right when it's going off the cliff. But yeah. then that season has one of the best finales. And then season five, you know, from there on, the, the show was great again. It has, season four has, isn't that the episode where Dr. Melfi gets assaulted? No, that's in season three. Oh, that's season three. So season four had Pine Barrens and... No, that's also season three. Season oh, shit. Well, so what was Ralph in season four? Head cut off. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mainly Carmella flirting with Furio, but the big episode is Ralphie gets his head chopped off. Yeah, so season three was, that man, that was a really good one. Was that Annabella Ciora too? Was that season three? Yep, yep, Gloria. It's hard to remember the seasons when you watch 86 and four and a half weeks. It's hard to remember which, what was, what episode yep. was in which part. Um, I, I was struck rewatching how good the last season was. And it's one of the best closing stretches ever. Yeah. I, and I don't know why I didn't totally remember that, but I think part of it was just being jaded by the complicated feelings about the season finale, but holy fucking shit. It's re I mean, every it's basically split into two seasons, which you explain in your book that they had to do for contractually pretend it was all one season, but it's really two seasons. Yep. And um, those last, is it six or seven to end it? Seven, right? It's seven episodes, I think. Um, if you can Possibly get nine. If you can get past poor Robert Eiler, who's the Marco Ravioni, Marco Ravioni um, of this whole show and probably deserves his own podcast at this point. 
Um, a lot of really high usage rate for Robert Eiler in that last season, that la- the last 20 episodes. Yep. Um, really just in it, it felt like Chase was trying to explore some sort of when a father gets disappointed by his son type of theme, but really, really explored it and didn't really have the right actor for it. But um, if you get past that, I thought it was incredible. And that leads me to the ending, which um, now that it's been 13 years, now that I know what's going to happen, now that I know my cable didn't go out, and now that I just experienced the whole show from start to finish again, the ending's amazing. It's yeah. I, I'm actually all in on the ending. I am a, I am a fucking full Kool-Aid drinker of the ending. <laughs> it's really good. It actually is exactly how it should have ended. It's per- it's kind of perfect. And I don't how many people feel this way. I definitely do impress for the book. I've encountered a lot of people who have done a 180 like you on the ending where they were mad at the time and now like it. Not everybody. Some people are still upset, but more often than not, people seem to like, you know, that it ended that way. And you thought, I can't, you wrote it with Matt Zollersites. One of you was convinced that he died. That was you, right? No, that's, it's more of a joke. I think like it's easier to see the argument, oh, that he died than I did back when it aired, you know, 12, 13 years ago. Um, but I think it's, I mean, it's, it's ambiguous. We talk about that at length. I think it's, the scene is about death, but you don't actually see him die and you can either decide or not decide that he gets killed there. I think he 100% died after watching okay. the show and the clues that he sprinkled in. And especially the, the, the Bobby Bacala on the boat scene, when... They they like, what do you think happens when you get whacked? Do you, do you think you hear it? And I think everything goes back. Then he calls back to it in the second to last episode. Like he clearly was trying to tell us, hey, get ready. This is going to happen. That's how I feel. I don't know if I'm right, but that's my feeling. No, and it's, it's not an unreasonable thing. And there's so many clues and just so many like uh, hints about death sprinkled throughout that episode, throughout that season. Like you definitely want to be watching it and feel he wants you to be watching it and feeling like, Oh, Tony could die at any moment. Life is so fragile. Life is so precious. You know, and we walk through this world and you never know when it's going to happen. And maybe this is it for him. It's really well constructed and really well done. And, uh, it's funny watching though, all that in a row, you, it starts affecting your behavior. I definitely felt like I was a little more aggro during the, during those four weeks. <laughs> like, Something wasn't working out at the ringer and I just wanted to whack the person. Um, I also, uh, I, the, the funniest thing that I, I started doing at my house was the, oh, that yep. whole thing. Like when somebody's insulted or a joke or like, Bill, you're finally going to tape your podcast today, huh? Oh, like one of the, uh, it's just the way those guys interacted was so unique. And, you know, my favorite scenes are just them at the Bing or playing cards or just busting each other's balls or taking something personally. Um, the worst scenes, you, you're going to be unhappy to hear this. There might've been some fast forwarding during some of the Dr. Melfi scenes for me. <laughs> I'm shocked to hear you say this, Bill, after all the time I've known you. Shocked. It wasn't a pure 86 episode run. It probably, I probably chopped maybe four percent of it just by being like you know what not really in the mood for another weird dr melfi scene it, that character didn't work for me 13 years 13 20 years ago and uh i don't know you're you're higher on dr melfi though and i was higher this time than i was back in the day i used to think that she 
Lorraine Bracco was kind of the weak link of the major cast members because she, she would seem stiff a lot of the time. And when I went back and watched it again for the book, it seemed more like, no, that's deliberate. Like she's uncomfortable being around this guy a lot. And there are moments when she's not, and she she's really great in those. I guess the biggest flaw of this show, and if, you know, the Mount Rushmore for me, which has five shows on it, all of them have flaws. Um, the 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 flaw for this show is is the supporting actors. Some of the acting is just not good. It's just not. It's there's some really kind of subpar actors. So when somebody like Buscemi or Joe Panaleano, Panaleano or Frank Vincent, guys like that come in that are like real actors who really know what the fuck they're doing, it stands out. And maybe he intended it to be that way. But I look at somebody like Bobby Bacala, who actually got better by the last season, was actually pretty good. But those first couple seasons, like he's just bad. Um, and there's there over and over again, there's people in these parts that are actually like half important parts and they're just not actors. There's definitely people who they, you know, had to veer out of their lane more than they should have just because other pe- other characters got killed off and, you know, they got promoted, you know, further up on the bench than they probably should have. Um you know, and then even even somebody like Steve Van Zant works almost entirely just as comic relief. And if you try to do more with him, yeah. it's problematic. But then you have a scene like him with Adriana, and it's terrifying. Yeah, so that's true. Yeah, um, it was an amazing experience to rewatch it. It's I think it's available. It's on HBO now, obviously, but I think it's also on uh, on Amazon Prime. And now I'm thinking about the next binge watch. There's been rumors of of the Simmons family maybe plowing through Mad Men. Just rumors right now. Whispers. I've heard that's a good show, Bill. With, there's been whispers that we might be plowing through all of those. And I just got to decide. It's a little, it's got a little, I, I, I'd i be interested to see how, how many a night you could watch a Mad Men. It feels like two would be the max. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think Mad it's Men's dense. a little less pulpy than Sopranos. With Sopranos, there's always some kind of what's going to happen next and who's going to get killed element to it that can pull you along, even though the episodes, I think, are really dense and sort of laden with meaning in the same way that Mad Men is. Uh, you know, you could, you'd certainly go back and rewatch Breaking Bad faster than I expect you would Mad Men. Yeah, and Breaking Bad, definitely. But I feel like that was only like five, six years ago, though. I feel like I just did that. I, I, I'm eyeing the wire as well. Because uh, in the power rankings right now, The Wire was one heading into the Sopranos binge, but now now I think Sopranos might be back to the one spot again for me. I think it might go. Well, now you got to test it out. I think. I think it's Sopranos, The Wire, um, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and then Thrones fifth for the five for the five show Mount Rushmore. That's that's how I'd go right now. What would you do for your five? Uh, Rank those would, five. Uh, it would be Sopranos, uh, Wire, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, Deadwood nice. as my fifth. Deadwood. Nice. Yeah. So would you bump out? I'd bump out Game of Thrones. Man. Easily. I mean, I like Game of Thrones a lot, but I don't think it's in the class of any of those. I. I'm torn on it because. The best Game of Thrones episodes, like the peak peak Game of Thrones is just some of the greatest TV I've ever seen in my life. Like, what was the episode when uh, 
when Tyr- when Tyrion takes over the battle from Joffrey, that fucking loser. Uh, Blackwater. Blackwater. I just remember watching that for the first time and and just being just staggered by it. Same thing for Red Wedding. Like some of the iconic shows. Like I, I really did. The best version of that show is still as good as I've ever seen on television. But I think the totality of it, I don't know. It's it's very uneven, and it's more sort of like it's a show better served to like watch clips on YouTube than it is to go back and rewatch whole episodes or whole seasons. I think. Yeah, it's great in moments for sure. And you feel like Lost has has kind of fallen out of this argument. Uh, I don't know that Lost was ever in the argument of like you know top five of all time. I think in 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 our TV book that Matt and I did, it was somewhere in the twenties. No, uh, I didn't. I didn't mean the. I didn't mean the uh, the totality of the show, but just like the best possible episode of a show. Ah oh, man, the best possible <clears throat> episode of Lost is pretty high up there. Like the Constant and a couple of the other ones are, are really amazing. Yeah. Um, but you yeah, know that's a very uneven show for sure. Yeah, Lost was like one of those basketball players that could have forty-seven one night and then like seven the next night, just bounce around. Is there do you, is there any show right now that's out there that you feel like even has a chance to be discussed as reverentially or no? I mean, I think Atlanta could um, in terms of, of things that are still airing right now. Um, that that has, that has a possibility. Um, but again, it's sort of like how many people are watching Atlanta? How many people are watching BoJack Horseman as opposed to, you know, how many people were watching Sopranos back when it was on or how many people are watching Thrones right now? Can I tell you the, the most important show for my kids right now? And you're going to think I'm a bad parent and I don't I care. I will not. I will never judge a parent for what their kids watch. My kids love Big Mouth and it's completely inappropriate and they shouldn't be watching <laughs> it. And I found out they were watching it after they had already watched like 18 of them. And, uh, now it's like I, you, I'm in no man's land with it because if you tell kids not to watch something, they're gonna end up. It's gonna make them watch it even more. And I want my kids to have a sense of humor, but they, they think that show is absolutely amazing. And I'm a bad parent, I think, for letting them watch it. But. I don't know. I mean, I've had long conversations about this with Nick Kroll. Um, you know, he said like they didn't intend for kids to watch it, but they found a lot of them have. Yeah, and it sort of it has prompted good conversations with their parents about it. So. I, I guess in that respect, it's okay. My kids have not watched it, and I think if I tried to show it to them, my wife would kick me out of the house. But, you know, it's a really good and empathetic show, so that's, you're not a bad parent for them having seen it, Bill. We had a soccer tournament this weekend where we all had to stay over at this hotel in Temecula, which is two hours from LA. And um, all the parents were in the lobby. We were all having drinks, and 10 of the kids were in my room. And I went back to my room to get something. And it was like a record scratch <laughs> followed by multiple kids going, Zoe, turn it off, turn it off. But she couldn't find the button. And then I hear on the TV, one of the characters goes, you're a fucking bitch. And I'm like, what are you guys? And it, they were watching Big Mouth and they were mortified. And then they're like, don't tell anyone. Don't tell, don't tell our parents. Don't. T-. And I'm like, all right, guys, I got you. I'm not going to talk about this now. I'm just going to talk about it on my podcast later for a million people. Um, but yeah, so Big Mouth has penetrated the uh, don't tell our parents we're watching this vortex. Uh, are you, what's your, what's your feeling before we go on uh, these last six episodes of Game of Thrones? I'm really going to be interested to see how it works because it sounds like every episode is going to be 80 or 90 minutes long, which is usually not good, but yeah. they've got so much story to cover and so many characters to deal with. Uh, and they work on a scale that no other show ever has. So 
Uh, I'm hopeful, but I don't know yet. I didn't. I didn't really love the last season. So, but it's also been gone for two years. So I'm excited to be back in this world for a little bit. I cannot figure out why they're doing this movie treatment of these episodes and what what is unless there's some sort of contractual thing that I don't totally understand. But just why not just do ten one hour episodes? It's very strange. Like for years, they insisted that they didn't want to do episodes longer than 50 minutes, even though they like shot much more material, if I'm remembering right, than they were using. And so all of a sudden at the end, they're kind of flipping it and they're going almost double that. Hmm. I don't know the answer. Um, is your book doing well? People like it? Yeah, the book's doing well. It's, it's almost It's been doing almost too well in that we, we keep selling out the printings, but it's still in stock at Amazon right now. And the going to be a new big printing in about a week. And so if you don't want to order from Amazon and you want to wait, it should be available everywhere else again, you know, within a week or so. So your publisher needs to get his, their shit together is what you're telling me. Um, it's demand <laughs> has vastly exceeded supply. Thus far. Uh, I've written two books and both times that happened. And it was really frustrating the second time because <laughs> I, we had this actual real, ins, real, instant of this happening where there's proof and like, here's what's going to happen. And here's why we have to print this many books. And they still didn't. And then it happened again. And I almost lost my mind. I hope all those emails have been destroyed from 2009 (laughs) that I wrote angrily to everybody. We went to a thing in Washington we had like, there's like 1200 people there and they had 200 books. And this was after I had sent a hundred emails like, Hey, Washington, there's a lot of fans there. Like we've got to, got to make sure we're prepared. And we had 200 books. It was great. The but, sense I've gotten is it's more on the end of the distributors, like Barnes and Noble vastly underordered it, for instance. Yeah. Cause so, they don't want to get stuck with them. They're catching up. Yeah. They don't, they're, yep. they're always going to play it safe, but this was a really good idea for a book. Do you have a next idea for a book? Uh, there, there's some things that I'm, I'm talking about and then Matt and I are talking about, but n- nothing that either of us can announce quite yet. What about the 90210 sessions? <laughs> I, I do have one good 90210 story, not related to, to Dylan, but uh, a few years back, I wound up at, like guest lecturing at a UCLA class taught by Charles Rosen, who was, you know, the Oh, that guy's amazing. The yeah. Yep. He's the, I, he was the David, bugged, Chase, the David Chase of 90210. And, and I agreed to do it on one condition, which is, and this is like hardcore 90210 nerdery here, which is, they repeated their sophomore year or they repeated their junior year, whatever, because they're, they're juniors in the first year. Yeah. And then they, then they, you know, go off to the summer to work at the beach club. They come back and they're still juniors and then they're seniors. And I wanted to know what happened. And Rosin said, all right, you, you come and you lecture my class. I will tell you. And at the very end of it, he said, all right, what it was, was Jason Priestley felt embarrassed to be playing a high school sophomore. We intended for the kids to be sophomores. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so there's the episode where, where Brendan is dating the single mom yeah. for an episode. And there's supposed to be a line where he says, I'm only a sophomore. And he says, I'm only a junior. And he would not do a take where he said, I'm only a sophomore. And so the kids all wind up repeating their junior year because of that. That's just ludicrous. I can't believe that. Well, you know what else was ludicrous? Casting Gabriel Carteris as a high school sophomore when she was 30. Those are the, that was the era when, when we did stuff like this and we had no internet check and balances. You could just kind of do whatever you want. Oh, no, we knew. We well, knew. We knew. It was a running joke. That was the other thing we should have mentioned with, with, uh, with 90210 was it was all pre-internet. So you, we, we all had the same jokes and 
whatever about this show, but nobody knew that anybody else had the same joke. So all the stuff that you made fun of in your little groups, everybody else was yeah. too, but you hadn't really no, no idea that that was happening. It's kind of, it was yeah. simpler times, simpler times, Alan Seppenwell. Um, this was fun. Thank you as always for coming on. And uh, I'm excited for your next book. Anytime, Bill. My pleasure. All right. All right. Thanks to ZipCooter. Don't forget to go to ZipCooter.com slash BS. Thanks to Robert Mays and Alan Seppenwell. Thanks to uh, Mercari, the selling app that makes it fast and easy to sell almost anything. Take a few picks, add a description. Boom. Your item is listed. Buyers in all 50 states. Everything ships easily. No awkward meetups. Find Mercari in the app stores or on Mar Mercari.com. M-E-R-C-A-R-I. Mercari. Com. Thanks to Allbirds. They make stylish, comfortable footwear designed for life's everyday adventures like the Allbirds Wool Runners, which are made from wool. These shoes look great. The design is super simple, perfect in the office, out in the town, or in my case, in the LA when it's like 49 degrees in the mornings, you want some warm shoes. Head to allbirds.com to get your own very pair. Your own very pair? Your very own pair. Why can't I do this? I have like very own dyslexia. Your very own pair of soft and cozy wool runners. Check that out. And don't forget to go to Simmons.RobinHood.com as well. Remember, they're giving our listeners a free stock to help you build your portfolio. Check it out. Uh, back with one more BS podcast later in the week. Until then. Bye.